Hello and welcome to the Think Big series brought to you by PSG. I'm Alicia Second. Now, the Think Big series is a collection of dialogues with leading speakers. The aim to bring its audiences independent insights that help them formulate their own opinions on some of our country's most pressing issues, but to also keep conversations moving. And you can do this via the social media campaign, hashtag ThinkBigPSG. The series is free, it's shareable, and open to anyone interested, whether you're a PSG client or not. Today, we put in the spotlight on Russia's invasion of Ukraine and how it will impact the world and South Africa in particular. Of course, over and above the human element and tragedy, any attempt at trying to fully assess the economic impact of the conflict is incredibly difficult. And at this point, given the fluid nature of the conflict and elevated uncertainty, precise estimates are impossible to quantify. But where everyone is wondering what the future holds when it comes to Ukraine, Russia, and overall global geopolitical volatility, there are key considerations to take note of. And in today's session, I talk to Daniel Silk. Daniel is one of South Africa's leading independent political analysts covering South African, African, and global political and economic issues. As a renowned futurist, keynote speaker, and commentator, his insightful and predictive presentations on topical issues are in great demand. He recently published an acclaimed new book, Tracking the Future, Top Trends That Will Shape South Africa and the World. So Daniel, it's great to be able to catch up with you today. And I guess the place to start is with the commonly held view, right? That Russian President Vladimir Putin's objective for invading Ukraine is to install a puppet regime that is pliable to Moscow's interests. And one wants to know, is that the long and the short of it? How did we get to this point? Well, uh, good morning, everybody. Hello, Alicia, and uh, hello, uh, PSG. It's uh, a privilege for me to be with you this morning, and it is a very important issue. I'm very pleased you've decided to focus on this issue. It is, I think, uh, it's not only dramatic in terms of the headline news uh, perspective, but clearly it's going to have a very broad uh, economic effect on the entire planet for that matter, and uh, it could really change the face of the world, at least in the foreseeable future. So again, thank you for having me. Uh, Alicia, look, I think the, uh, you know, the, the issues with Ukraine uh, and the issues with Russia are probably a long time coming. All of us talking heads can be clever in hindsight to a degree, but we have seen over the course of the entire Russian history, uh, a penchant, if I might use that word, for isolationism, for paranoia, for fear of the outside, and Russia's geography in itself, uh, almost quite isolated behind the Ural Mountains, stretching across uh, you know, 11 time zones from west to east, uh, really has historically uh, isolated. Now, you know, when people are isolated, they're isolationist physically and they're isolated mentally as well. Uh, so uh, Russia's history peppered with this uh, fear of uh, invasion, and obviously more recently, fear of the encroachment of the West. And I think at the root of this particular issue, well, there are a number of factors at the root of it, Alicia, and one could go into a history lesson here about Russia. But I think the few factors just to mention, firstly, there's no doubt that the firmament following the fall of the Berlin Wall, that firmament, that uncertainty in Central Europe and the political consequences of Russia losing her imperialist empire after that Berlin Wall fall really has remained partially unresolved in Europe. 
and the fears of the encroachment of the West via its military arm from a Russian perspective, NATO, clearly has undermined uh, confidence within Russia and has created certainly amongst a proportion of the Russian political elite, a fear about Western encroachment, Western values, and of course the political consequences of this for uh, the elites in Russia themselves. And uh, when elites become fearful, of course, uh, they react, uh, even for that matter in this country. We see uh, the effects of state capture and how elites who have benefited from state capture in South Africa become fearful and perhaps uh, mobilize against that. Now, I think the same exists to a large degree in Russia. So uh, the roots really, I think, are uh, psychological for Russians. They're embedded in Russian history, but they're embedded also in the inability really of that post-Berlin Wall period to really provide Russia with a degree of added security, perhaps, or a peace of mind that the encroachment of NATO uh, would ultimately, would ultimately uh, uh, have its end point in some sort of Russian capitulation to the West. Uh, there are other factors as well, and we can look at Absolutely. issues related to, to, to big ideological issues in the world, I might add, and please ask me about whether this is a battle between uh, an autocratic world versus a more liberal world, because that should be- What a segue, way. what a segue, Daniel, because, <laughs> you know, this is, like you say, a complex situation that's triggered debate and a pointing out of what it means if you choose one side or the other. So does being anti-Putin necessarily mean that you're pro-NATO, for example? Uh, well, uh, if you are anti-Putin, you may also be anti-authoritarian. Now, put, put NATO and put the military issue aside, we've certainly seen a drift towards authoritarianism in Russia over the last number of years, and you've seen uh, Russian crackdowns against opposition, opposition figures, uh, and very serious crackdowns of that, and also against the free and independent media in Russia. So we are dealing here with a very large country of 140 million people armed with 6,000 nuclear warheads uh, that uh, clearly does not represent uh, a, or is not a participant to the liberal world order, whatever that means. And there certainly are many theorists out there who would argue that this is a part of a larger battle, a battle to wrest control from the West and replace Western dominance in the world with something else, with a more non-aligned or non-Western approach to doing business, whether that's through changing the financial structures that we all operate through in the world, uh, or whether that's through changing the institutions of the world to make them more representative of non-Western interests and not led by the West. So if you are a supporter of Vladimir Putin, you might for that matter believe in the reduction of the power of the West, the influence of the West, and the introduction of something else. Uh, we're not quite sure what that something else is, and I think that even those who support Vladimir Putin or support this particular view don't quite know yet what an alternative global structure, the alternative rules of the game will be, but nevertheless, I think there's an element of that built into this particular conflict as well, and what's important in that particular sense is whether Russia is acting alone, is she an isolated power in standing up to the West, or will Russia now and perhaps in future rely increasingly on China to assist her in resisting the advantages of the West and also imposing perhaps some sort of different world order on the, on, on the planet? 
Okay, so that broad strokes the positioning that we're looking at, right? But uh, this part of the reason why it's not a matter of uh, you know, an issue between two states. While NATO and the EU have held back, given the possible ramifications of that action taken, the International Court of Justice has ruled that Russia must immediately suspend its military op operation in Ukraine, Daniel. So what does this now mean? I mean, where does this put things, if it takes it anywhere at all, by making any difference? Well, I think, you know, you have the decision by Vladimir Putin and by all intents, it seems as though he has led that decision and he has led that decision without that much consultation, even with some of his most senior officers. And I think that uh, for Vladimir Putin, if you read his history and you try to understand the man, uh, defeat is going to be very, very difficult for him to accept. So we're in a position now where clearly a degree of face saving is going to be required if there is to be some sort of negotiated settlement. But I do want to make the point here that uh, in the, in the Ukraine itself is a, is a large country. Remember, it's the largest, the largest country in, in Europe, um, over 40 million people. It also is a breadbasket, not only to its own population, but in exports of wheat and other critical food-related crops to the outside world. And for a Russia that is ultimately a declining empire in itself, Russian population is beginning to shrink, uh, its global reach is a lot more limited than, for that matter, China's. Uh, shoring up the Ukraine as part of the broader mother Russia also provides Russia with a sense of security, a sense of self-worth, a, a sense of power that had diminished as a result of the end of the Cold War. So there are elements in this conflict that are big picture elements, and there are elements also that relate to what I would regard as the existence of mother Russia in the minds of many Russians. So it's therefore a very complex conflict. And I think one yeah. shouldn't be too narrowly focused on aspects of it. The bottom line to really answer your question is that this conflict now has resulted in achieving precisely the opposite as to what President Putin would have liked. He has galvanized the West and other supporting nations against Russia. He now finds himself the most sanctioned country in the world just in the last 24 days or so since the invasion. And ultimately, he has strengthened NATO in the uh, resolve of the existing NATO countries and those candidate NATO countries to bolster the alliance even further into the future to contain Russia into the future. So uh, that's point, not the Daniel, way to go if you don't want Russia on your doorstep. <laughs> Any isolationist thinking is far gone at this point, right? There's a series now of domino effects to consider. So let's get into that because we've already seen some of the dominoes start to fall and the economic reverberations being felt via rising commodity prices for one. So talk us through some of those consequences and how the effect on any South African's pocket becomes an increasingly hard one to ignore. Yeah, I think the effect obviously is going, to be felt, uh, is going to be felt everywhere across the world. So it really doesn't matter to a degree whether you're in South Africa or whether you're in Washington or whether you're in Berlin. Um, everyone is going to be paying more for critical commodities. And in particular, the one that hits us the most and the most immediately is clearly the fuel price. Now, um, for us uh, in South Africa, the big issue will be the fuel price increases that are coming. They were coming prior to the Ukraine uh, invasion. And I think from an economic point of view, um, the post-COVID the post-COVID period itself has been characterized by supply shortages. So you've got the supply shortages as a result of the COVID period, plus the supply shortages as a result of the ban on Russian oil imports and on uh, the supply chain 
of Russian oil coming out of that particular region, uh, providing this double whammy on uh, the oil price. Now, uh, we know in uh, developing countries in particular that uh, poorer segments of the population spend a much greater degree of their disposable income when it comes to uh, critical aspects like fuel transportation costs, like food costs as well. And therefore, there are specific countries in this world who are really going to feel the pinch. South Africa will feel it on oil and transportation costs for sure. Fortunately, we are relatively food secure. And I say relatively food secure because we, of course, do have some wheat imports into our country. And as a result of the breadbasket of Central Europe being disrupted as a result of this war, we are likely to see wheat prices increase and bread prices increase as well. So we will not be saved on the food price aspect of inflation. But as we stand at the moment, possibly we're just marginally better off than uh, certainly many other countries in the world. And I think of Egypt and you would think of uh, uh, Turkey for that matter, uh, Tunisia, many of the North African countries really heavily reliant upon Russian gas and of course on uh, food supplies coming out of that region. Uh, but it's not going to absolve us of the effects and pressures and I have to say as well, from a global perspective, you've seen just in the course of the last day or so, the US Fed begin an interest rate hike uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, cycle. That cycle, which we would have predicted would have been perhaps four interest rate increases for the next year, now looks as though it could be the maximum of seven interest rate increases. And South Africa too will once again be under pressure to raise her interest rates if both inflation and the US Fed interest rate is up. So there are a number of knock-on effects here. Yeah, invasion from consequences cannot be divorced here, uh, Daniel. And yet, uh, we, you know, we'll get to the Fed's position and the SARB and how that relates in just a bit. Before we do, while well, more than half of African nations voted in favor of the UN motion for Russia to withdraw its troops at the end, uh, you know, to end uh, the conflict, 31% abstained. And South Africa was in that pack. Uh, and let's face it, right, abstaining is seen as tantamount to supporting the Russian action in Ukraine. So just how tarnished a view of South Africa is there uh, out there right now? And have you noted any shifts or, uh, you know, changes in diplomatic language with South Africa, which indicates a possible redrawing of the geopolitical map? Yeah, I think South Africans' pos position has been obviously uh, ambiguous, to use a nice local term, a draughtsitter position is the way I would see it. And we know why it's an ambiguous position. Uh, the historical legacy of uh, the support from uh, the Soviet Union and the ongoing linkages between Moscow and uh, Pretoria uh, clearly uh, are very difficult for Ramaphosa's ANC to handle. Uh, and this awkwardness of the last few weeks, uh, contradictory statements, uh, the lack of uh, willingness to really condemn the worst parts of the invasion itself, the killing of innocent people in particular, really, I think, has put South Africa in a, in, a, in, a, in a difficult and troublesome position as a result of this. Now, within the broader global community, I think, uh, you know, the international community and the West in particular are probably less concerned about South Africa's position now and more concerned about the immediate issues of a potential escalation in Europe. So South Africa can get away to a degree with taking what it regards as a neutral stance you must remember that uh, India as well, uh, one of the other participants of the BRICS group of nations for that matter, has also taken a neutral stance. India has much more extensive trade 
uh, between herself and Russia. South Africa's trade with Russia is negligible. In fact, less than 1% of our total imports in South Africa come from Russia. So uh, the issue in South Africa really is a, uh, an historic, a legacy issue as to why uh, we uh, wish to remain as uh, neutral as possible. But I think that it doesn't help South Africa. It muddies the do water. We go, sorry to interrupt, Daniel, but yeah. do we go as far as saying African uh, citizens and sovereign interests have given way to Russian priorities? Well, I think, you know, the historical legacies have. And I think that what we, what we I think, are going to find is that this kind of draftsitter attitude muddies the water when South Africa goes to seek foreign investment, goes to seek those connections that it so desperately needs to kickstart our domestic economy. It's not going to endear us to many Western interests. And I think uh, it's not likely it's going to affect us in terms of getting that investment. It just adds a layer. It adds a layer of uncertainty of questioning about the bona fides of South Africa and where South Africa will be, be positioned in future, should we be looking at a different global structure? Which side of the world will South Africa uh, uh, fall on? Look, okay, so know, with that potential, Daniel, that it affects trade patterns and investment as you know the rules of the game change, what does South Africa have to be wary of here as it adopts, dare I say, an almost two-faced stance? Because you know, while trade with Russia may be minimal, that's not where the impact on trade gets ring-fenced. Well, of course, on the broader philosophical issue, South Africa doesn't want to be on the wrong side of history. And over time, the, the way this event can play itself out can still be seen as a defeat for Russia. It can also see as a political defeat for Vladimir Putin. And if you put all your diplomatic eggs in one basket in being as neutral as South Africa seems to want to be, you can really undermine your own reading of where history will take, will take us. So that's on the broad philosophic, uh, philosophical point. But I think South Africa also sees itself uh, as a potential mediator in this conflict, given the good relations with, uh, with Moscow. Uh, and for that matter, the country, South Africa, has tried to steer this, this, this middle road, but it's not really a middle road if you're only prepared to engage with uh, Moscow and not prepared to engage with Kiev. I mean, if you're going to be a, if you're going to be a mediator, you really need to be able to uh, 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 endear yourself with credibility on both sides of this particular equation. So I do think that South Africa has to be a lot more careful about this uh, lack of uh, involvement from a moral and ethical perspective, because ultimately that's what we're dealing with here. We're dealing with the attacks by Russia on civilian targets. And South Africa is very quick to criticize other countries across the world uh, when uh, this kind of issue happens. And I think particularly of issues relating to Israel and the Middle East, but she is not equally prepared uh, to take the uh, diplomatic plunge on an issue relating to excesses uh, executed by Moscow. And I think, that, I think that really undermines South Africa's position. And I might also add, it also undermines South Africa's broad history, given that the ANC came to power on the back of global sanctions, which assisted in the remo removal of the apartheid regime. You can't choose, you can't choose which sanctions you support ultimately. And in this particular case, the ANC really has to be very, very careful about falling into um, a what I would call a diplomatic trap set by Russia, uh, which I don't think will provide it with uh, enough sustenance globally to withstand the Western pressures. And those Western pressures are being felt, uh, Alicia, and even you know within PSG, and it's going to be felt amongst the financial services community, 
in dealing with clients who come from Russia. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm certainly aware of financial institutions in South Africa uh, who have been getting requests uh, to manage um, capital and manage cash from wealthy Russian clients and banks and brands in South Africa themselves within the private sector are going to have to be very careful about taking on that kind of business. Now, you know, the private sector is going to be forced to comply with the, the global regulations to a degree. The South African government is going to try and play at all sides and be relatively friendly if it can to Moscow. There's a disconnect therefore between the way the private sector handles this and the way the states or on a diplomatic level handle this. I'm just going to throw in a quick question on sanctions and, uh, you know, just looking at the flip side of the coin for a minute, Daniel, do you see the, the bit of support Russia's managed to derive being enough to circumnavigate the sanctions that have been imposed? I mean, is there enough muscle uh, to shore up supply chains, uh, for example? Well, look, we know in South Africa that uh, sanctions uh, have a more long-term effect than a short-term effect. And we know that there are, and given our history, uh, there are always uh, creative ways in which to circumvent um, critical sanctions. And we saw that in South Africa, particularly in our armaments industry. Um, for Russia, the critical issue will be whether China assists in uh, the supply chains that are necessary and whether China assists in the uh, development of new financial instruments and conduits for Russia to move capital and have access to capital across the world. Uh, and I'm thinking clearly of the SWIFT payment system, which has now been, uh, uh, which effectively Russia has been excluded from. So China will play a critical issue in that. And that is why today, President Biden is speaking to President Xi in Beijing, because ultimately, if China decides to provide uh, assistance to Russia in this environment, Russia will probably be able to withstand many of these sanctions for longer. But these sanctions are severe, make no mistake, Alicia. I mean, if you're going to uh, suspend uh, half of the assets of your effective sovereign wealth fund in, in the Russian state bank, if you're going to ban uh, uh, Russian oil imports uh, and uh, along with just about every other major import into the West, uh, you're really setting back the Russian economy. Uh, you're making life very difficult for the oligarchs in particular, and you are potentially sowing the seeds of internal dissent in Russia that can occur in the medium term. So I do think that uh, the sanctions are going to have a political and economic consequence in Russia, but China's assistance is going to be critical as to whether Russia capitulates quicker or whether Russia can withstand for a longer period of time the extent of the economic consequences. Are you leaning in any particular way, Daniel, uh, you know, uh, given the kind of posturing China has taken up to this point in terms of how these talks today are going to potentially play out? Yeah, it's a good question, Alicia. I wish I had the, uh, I, I wish I had my, my, my fly on the wall um, on, on, on that particular issue and, and what's being said in Beijing right now. You know, I think the Chinese are watching the position very carefully. Remember, from a geopolitical point of view, uh, there are pending issues with China in the world, just putting Russia to the side for a moment. Uh, we, understand, we certainly know that there's the potential of Chinese encroachment on Taiwan, which really bubbles under the surface and perhaps even bubbles over the surface more recently as a result of Chinese incursions into Taiwanese airspace and into the South China Sea in particular, which can become another flashpoint uh, of uh, geopolitical insecurity. And China will be watching very carefully to see, you know, how is Russia affected by these sanctions? 
And how can China prepare should she decide to make a strategic move on uh, Taiwan? So, uh, you, know, you know, I think that, you know, from the Chinese point of view, what a useful exercise for them uh, to see this play out in advance of any further action from China. Uh, it gives China, I think, a, uh, a lead in to uh, alter some of their systems to withstand the possible consequences of further sanctions if those actions take place. But my view is that, you know, China really has more to lose in this battle. I mean, why would China necessarily want to side uh, with Russia. Yes, there's the big issue of changing the global world order. Yes, there's the big issue of shifting the institutional bias in the world away from the West to something else. But China is much more integrated into the global economy than Russia. China's growth, her GDP growth, and the rise of the Chinese middle class uh, over the last two decades or so has been built on China's globalization. It hasn't been built on isolation. Uh, and if China now, with a faltering economy, for that matter, and China's economy is not going to go at 10, 15% GDP anymore, it's going to go at 5%, possibly even reducing to 3 or 4% over the next 10, 15 years or so, it's not in China's interest to be part of an isolationist bifurcation of this world and damage her economy at this stage. So my view is that China will play a lot, a much more prudent and careful role in this, but she'll watch and she'll prepare should she have designs upon Taiwan in the near future. Yeah, Daniel, and this brings us now back to what you already um, kind of alluded to right at the top, and that uh, risks in play for the world and South Africa alike. I mean, we've got rising inflation threatening to derail growth and potentially uh, destabilize social cohesion as well. This is uh, utility, transport, food costs, so on. You mentioned them all. Uh, so that one comes to hitting the South African pocket in one way, but then you also touched on uh, Fed Chair Jerome Powell's raising of interest rates for the first time time since 2018, forecasting, what, six more hikes uh, as we move through the rest of this year. And that a precursor of possible action from our own SARC, you know, given the heightened inflationary pressure that we're, we're facing and that hitting the South African uh, from a different different angle as well, right? When you consider the rising cost of borrowing, that's, that's going to come in tandem. Yeah, Alicia, the rising cost of borrowing is going to be affected. I can tell you countries across the world and I'll come to South Africa in a moment, but countries across the world are going to have to borrow more because they're going to have to up their defense budget. Uh, and, and certainly across Western Europe and Eastern Europe, and certainly in the United States, you'll see defense as a percentage of GDP rise and somebody's going to have to pay for that. So I do think that budget deficits are going to increase now. They were hopefully shrinking after COVID, but this has set everyone back. The same thing here in this country. It's funny that uh, you know, back in 2020, you know, I remember Tito Mboweni presenting his budget within about two weeks after that budget, uh, COVID hit us and whatever the projections were from Mboweni's 2020 budget largely went out of the window. Now, Gonawana has said similar issues now, just having presented his own budget, we now have uh, uh, the war in, in, in Central Europe. Uh, so I do think that we will see the impact substantially in South Africa. And we don't need in South Africa further pressure on critical price rises. We've seen the effect of that. And the effect of that is particularly uh, fragile in South Africa, given a more fragile political environment that we have here as well. Uh, and the fragility of our politics combined with the fragility of the disposable income of our citizens really does uh, present another powder keg for us. We saw it explode in KZN and Gauteng. Uh, in winter of last year. 
uh, that was partially politically motivated, but partially also as a result of rising poverty levels. And this country remains the most unequal country in the world. And these issues <laughs> don't help it. So, uh, but we're not gonna be alone. I mean, in Tunisia, we're, we're the birthplace of the Arab Spring. Uh, those Tunisians are gonna face dramatic food price increases. In Turkey, which has an unstable political system as well, they're gonna be dramatic price increases. And I think across the developing world and perhaps even amongst the developed world, we shouldn't underestimate the political effects of this pressure on the pockets of ordinary citizens going forward and their dissatisfaction with their governments and other ruling elites. Uh, and I do flag this as a issue for all of us to be very aware of. And that's why in, in South Africa, we have to take action. We've got to take action to begin to ameliorate the effects of this. Now we're thinking about adjusting the fuel price uh, levy increases, I see. And good, because we shouldn't have put them up uh, constantly for the last number of years. Uh, we've got to start thinking about that, but that's going to raise the cost and someone's going to have to pay for this. Let's color that in, uh, Daniel. I mean, do we surmise that, you know, identifying these key factors uh, that will affect business is going to be, uh, you know, starting to impact strategic planning? What kind of planning do you see starting to happen, not only from a, a national perspective and from government side, but from the private sector too? Yeah, you know, just quickly from, from the government side, you know, you know, just when government was getting a grip upon the public service wage bill, one thinks it was getting a grip, um, rises, rises in inflation are going to potentially set that back. So the biggest headache, I would argue, uh, is now for government in trying to trim its own expenditure bill uh, in trying to, broadly speaking, reduce our reliance upon debt. Uh, and, and that's a challenge for government. For the business sector, obviously, as well. Um, the business sector has trimmed their cost structures dramatically over the last few years as well, particularly through COVID, but they're now faced with an additional round of reviewing, certainly I think, you know, the supply side of, of the equation. I, I think the big issue here is going to be on supply chains, um, you know, finding supply chains that are more reliable, closer to home. Again, it's not just the South African issue. This is going to apply to corporates across the world. Um, the reliance upon global transportation networks is becoming politically tougher and becoming more costly as a result of COVID and this particular crisis. Uh, and I think that's where businesses are going to be looking to change their particular orientation. Now, that's good news in a sense for the African continent. We need to improve continental wide supply chains. Uh, and certainly in South Africa, uh, localization, which I broadly support although it's not so easy just to substitute imported products and make them locally, you've got to have, uh, you've got to tool up, you've got to have a cost structure, you've got to have a labor relations regime, you've got to have a favorable tax uh, regime as well. So what we need to do in South Africa is we need to incentivize the localization of production. We need to deregulate and make it easier for supply chains to be bolstered domestically in our country. And we need to do that, Alicia, through a variety of measures but I like using export processing zones for that matter, where you can have concessions on labor, uh, labor costs, where you can have tax concessions as well, and you can build that into your broader economic mix. And I think we need to do that and do that with some urgency. Daniel, I feel like we've been beating this drum for the longest mm. while now. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> you know, so to see action is going to be a thing. Um, 
I'm going to ask you a question on the back of a comment I read earlier this week, and I shudder at the prospect of sounding opportunistic or getting us to think, you know, opportunistically amidst all the devastation and the destruction that's being brought. But the comment was, wars create demand, and it's that opportunity that markets will look for. So how much starts happening in that respect? You know, uh, one of the headlines was um, Germany should look to Africa for gas, not to Russia, uh, to stop financing Moscow's brutal wars. Berlin should help African countries develop their energy sectors. Do you start uh, see that? Uh, do you see that um, starting to evolve? I think it is going to evolve, but it's a medium or longer term plan uh, for much of Western Europe in particular, who've been reliant upon Russian gas imports. Um, they have looked at convenience and they've looked at price before they've looked at politics. And when the Ukrainian president uh, addressed the Bundestag yesterday, he largely accused the German members of parliament of the Bundestag of precisely that, of looking after their own interests rather than looking at those bigger picture issues. Um, but you're quite right, opportunity does come out of adversity. And I think that uh, in terms of uh, the African gas export market, there is certainly potential, but you know, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a logistical and hardware process that can take many, many years, not to mention the regulatory environment as well. So I think it's very much a medium to longer term effort, but you know, I think the result of this is going to be that Western Europe in particular are going to reorientate themselves away from the commodities that Russia supplies, and those countries with those commodities are going to be what I call leverage nations, leverage nations. They have leverage. And who's got leverage in this world? Well, we know the Gulf countries have got leverage because of their solid oil supply still, and they are playing it very close to the chest. They're not giving in to the demands uh, from the West to increase supplies. This is their time to be in the pound seats. South Africa has got leverage in terms of her mineral exports. I mean, we, we're the second biggest palladium exporter in the world or amongst the biggest in the world. Uh, whether we can get our minerals to market, of course, is another question. And if we had greater investment and greater regulatory certainty in South Africa over the last decade, we would be better placed to be a leverage nation and to take advantage of this. And, you know, if I, if I had it, if, and I haven't got it here, Alicia, and it sometimes irritates me because I do like to have the one chart. I love charts and slides. <laughs> I would show you the chart of the, uh, the, the prices achieved for South Africa's commodity exports have been fantastic over the course of the last year or so. And that's why we had a 200 billion rand windfall in this last budget. But the volumes that we are exporting has not increased. We've achieved the windfall for our budget on the base of price, not on quantity of commodities that we have exported. And that shows that the uh, inability of us to open our economy to greater foreign investment has held us back in taking advantage of the previous commodity super cycle and potentially also this one. And if I had more hair on my head, Alicia, I would pull it out in frustration. I'll find yeah. that graph and show it to you. It's going to depress everyone. <laughs> Luckily, uh, yeah, we, we haven't, we don't see you at that point uh, <laughs> at this stage, Daniel. Let's take a look at South Africa's positioning because we're nearing the end of this conversation, right? And after everything we've outlined here, the potential scenarios, the ramifications, uh, you know, do you see this pushing South Africa to taking a more definitive stance on, on 
Ukraine-Russia issue because, you know, as with apartheid, we've seen a neutral position is not an option and it's likely to face nasty side effects in the long run. We've seen a little bit of a shifting from President Cyril Ramaphosa overnight, but it's been ever so slight. Yeah, I don't, I have to say, I don't see South Africa shifting from her current stance, uh, nuanced here and there, as you've indicated, but no, I think uh, South Africa will remain as out of the fray as far as possible. Of course, we are geographically quite isolated anyway from, from uh, Western Europe, just from, from, from the strategic point of view. Um, and strangely enough, Alicia, you know, we haven't seen that bad uh, economic effects other than the inflation issues here. You've seen the RAND strengthen over the course of the last few weeks or so. You've seen South Africa debt again being bought by foreign buyers. You've seen our equity market remain relatively buoyant with the exception of those uh, stocks that have some Russian exposure, I might add. So you haven't seen, you haven't really seen uh, um, a, a particularly negative consequence of this going forward. I, I, you know, the, the rubber might still hit the road uh, on the issue if this is a prolonged conflict. But I think South Africa, along with India, along, along with sort of the other partners who have a strategic interest, whether it's legacy or whether it's economic, uh, are going to remain on the sidelines here. They're going to watch very carefully to see what happens. Um, and uh, I don't expect a major shift in South Africa to begin uh, uh, critiquing Russia. Uh, okay. and, and I, you know, I don't think we can just expect that. Overall, are we on the pathway, Daniel, to escalation? What do you see being the key break to any escalation at this point? Well, you know, as an analyst, one always says, you know, uh, you know, who's got more to lose here? Um, for Vladimir Putin, he has the potential of destabilizing his country and for that matter, his own political future. Uh, the war itself seems to have been militarily poorly handled. Uh, the logistics have been weak. Uh, the long delays in getting supplies, particularly to Russian troops, seem to have set back uh, the advance of the war. You would assume that uh, President uh, Putin would have wanted this over within a few days. Perhaps his reading was that Ukraine would capitulate or would welcome the Russian troops in, just as Crimea capitulated back in 2014. The wrong reading of the position has left him vulnerable. That's the bottom line. Putin is vulnerable politically and also as the head of the military campaign. And I think when you're vulnerable, you've got to look for an exit strategy, for an off-ramp, and I suspect there are now efforts for that. And largely that will center around Ukraine giving up her aspirations to join NATO and being effectively disarmed. Those are the two big issues that I think Putin wants. In exchange, he'll have to leave Mr. Zelensky or President Zelensky in power, which is something he didn't want, but he's going to have to leave him in power. And the two sides are going to battle as to whether there will be some sort of division or partition of the Ukraine going forward. And that will be up for negotiation. Well, it's been a pleasure, Daniel, catching up with you this morning. Of course, we've got uh, all eyes on what's playing out, uh, not just, uh, you know, Russia and Ukraine, uh, in Russia and Ukraine alone, but uh, how this starts to reverberate globally. Uh, it's going to be a one that we're going to, like I say, be keeping an eye on and we're holding uh, our breath as well. At this point, I'm going to say a goodbye to you and bring in Adrian Pask from PSG now, uh, just to run. Uh, on this discussion up and uh, conclude with a few words from PSG's side. Adrian. Right, thank you very much. And uh, thank you, Daniel, for sharing your fascinating insights on what is a, a very complex matter. I think uh, this discussion certainly highlighted the importance of, of three things. Firstly, 
thinking long-term you know, through the immediate challenges that we're facing collectively while still navigating and managing risks effectively. Secondly, um, managing a, a, a well-diversified portfolio and maintaining that portfolio at those diversification levels at all times. And then lastly, partnering with a specialist that can help investors navigate these complex scenarios. So I would like to remind our audience that that is exactly what PSG is here for. We have seen uh, these high impact events um, before and our award-winning strategies have demonstrated the ability to deliver during these events. So many thanks again from PSG side on this um, and to our audience for listening in this morning. Back to you, Alicia, thank you. Adrian, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, of course, that's Adrian Pass from PSG Wealth. Uh, just uh, with a few concluding remarks from uh, PSG's side. Uh, thank you, Adrian. Thank you, Daniel Silk, who's a political analyst, for having joined us this morning, for sharing your insights on, like what Adrian has highlighted, is a very complex issue right now. Um, it's one that uh, you can only control so much of, and uh, I guess that's where Adrian uh, diversification is key, diversification of the risk that you are exposed to on a global basis. On that note, we're going to have to leave the conversation there for this morning. It's been a pleasure hosting you. From here, Alicia Second, it's goodbye until the next time.